0: The 2023 Tony Beauchamp Prize in Critical Art Writing is open for submission to its seventh annual contest. The prize honors the late Tony Beauchamp, an avid supporter of the arts in Houston, Texas. The prize is presented by Gulf Coast, a journal of literature and art published in collaboration with the University of Houston.
1: Young and mid-career art writers who combine scholarship, contemporary art criticism, and literary excellence are encouraged to enter. The first place recipient is awarded $3,000 and publication. Two honorable mentions each receive 1,000. The prize will be juried by curator and artist advocate, Mickey Meng.
0: The contest closes on August 31st, and you can look to golfcoastmag.org for more information, including eligibility and application instructions. That's golfcoastmag.org. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. And this is the second episode where we speak to participants in the Momus and Forge art writing residency called Estuaries. So we're talking to the participants in the residency as well as faculty about a text of art writing that's meaningful to them. Last episode, we spoke to Megan Tamati-Quinnell, who was faculty on the residency, and this episode, we have a resident, Shundeen Brown. And I'll just say up top, Shundeen told uh, me in the interview that in Navajo language, Denebizad, Shundeen means sunray.
1: Well, that seems really fitting Mm -hmm. to Shundeen's character. Um, Shundeen Brown is an enrolled citizen of the Navajo Nation from Arizona and is currently the Henry Luce Curatorial Fellow for Native American Art at the Rhode Island School of Design, that's RISD Museum. And within that context, she works with historic and contemporary Native North American art. She's also a jewelry maker. She uses shell, turquoise, and juniper berries sustainably harvested in Coppermine, Arizona.
0: I really wanted to share a little snippet from her application letter to the residency because she wrote something quite lovely. But first off, I wanted to give a shout out to the YouTube channel Navajo Grandma, who has um, (laughs) Denevisad pronunciation guides. Uh, So the, the Navajo language words in here for mother and grandmother were, I was really helped out by... Navajo grandma on on that. (laughs) Um, Okay, so this is a quote from Shandine. Orality was a key aspect to my upbringing. I have warm childhood memories of my Shima mother telling me her ideas as she guided her 1996 forerunner through winding roads of northern Arizona. In the evenings as a child sharing a bed with my Shima Sané grandmother, she would lull me to sleep by talking about her thoughts and stories. With this said, I think that writing is a powerful tool. Writing can share our ideas, thoughts, and stories to a wider audience than someone in the passenger seat or under the covers of a twin bed.
1: So I know that you spoke to Shandine about two separate texts and that they were perhaps meaningful in different ways, maybe one of which was more agitating than (laughs) meaningful. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a bit about how this this sort of fell out and, and how you arrived at two texts rather than one?
0: Yeah. I mean, when we put out the invitation to people about a meaningful text, we sort of don't qualify it at all, let's say. The idea is that it can be something that is meaningful to you in the sense that you have great admiration for it. You want to write like that. It changed your way of thinking, but it can also be something that you sort of deeply disliked or that changed your way of thinking, you know, because you want to act against it. Mm -hmm. So initially, Shandine chose a text that she wanted to speak against, and then we came back to talk about a text that she wanted to speak for. And these two texts revolve around exhibition research. So the exhibition is called Dene Textiles, "Nijahonego Hadadit E." which means they are beautifully dressed. And it's going to be on view at the RISD Museum from September 2nd to September 29th. Um, The first text that Shundeen wanted to talk to us about is called The Navajo and His Blanket by Uriah S. Hollister. It was written in 1903. Uriah Hollister was a captain in the Union Army during the Civil War. He was also a collector of Navajo textiles, and this book the Navajo in his blanket, comes from a very ethnographic and racist perspective, Um, and it's writing from this idea that Navajo people and their craft and their art and their culture are dying and disappearing, Um, and that he, through this book, is going to, you know, preserve it somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second text, which is actually the excerpted text that Shandine reads for us in this episode is called There is No Word for Feminism in My Language, and it's by Laura Tohe. It was written in 2000. Tohe is a Diné writer and scholar and was the Poet Laureate of the Navajo Nation from 2015 to 2019. So they're two very different texts. <laughs>
1: hmm. No kidding. Across almost a century as well. Yeah. Um, and I, just so just to clarify for listeners that the first in- interview took place in June around the Hollister text. And then Shundeen reads Laura Tohei's text. There is no word for feminism in my language. And then you did an interview with her in August about the Tohei text, catching up on the exhibition that she's about to open and Shandeen's own writing practice. So I really love the element of time that's sort of baked into this episode as well, that you're talking to her across the season.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of our conversation is about how to incorporate Dene language, Dene Bazad, into the museum, into thinking about collection building and exhibition building, mm-hmm. um, and also uh, yeah, Navajo women and this extraordinary artistic practice and legacy that Shundeen is a facilitator for, um, so I'm really excited to present this interview, and here we go. <laughs> okay,
1: here is Lauren Wetmore talking to Shundeen Brown.
2: Yeah, a, a Shundeen Brownian this year. Um, so I just said in Dinebizad or Navajo language, hi, my name is Shandine Brown. Um, my clans are Kia'ani, which is Towering House, and Tlizatlene, which is Many Goats. Um, I'm a curator, I'm a creative, and a citizen of the Navajo Nation from Arizona. Um, and right now I'm the... Henry Luce Curatorial Fellow for Native American Art at the Rhode Island School of Design Museum, which is located in Providence, Rhode Island. And I'm also adjunct faculty in the Apparel Design Department at um, RISD. And so my, Project that I'm working on right now is an exhibition um, that's going to open in the fall of 2023 about Diné textiles and fashion and how women play a role as weavers and all of that. Um, but just overall, my research interests are Native and Indigenous fashion, jewelry, art, and feminism. Um, and I do beadwork myself, and you can find that on Instagram at Designs.
0: Amazing. And so, yeah, I saw that in your bio that you're working on this upcoming exhibition, which I assume is why you were reading this book that you wanted to talk about yes. today.
2: So the name is The Navajo and His Blanket by Urea S. Polster. Tell me about how you came across it. So at RISD, uh, when I get a research topic, I just go to our library fleet And I check out all the books that relate to that topic. So I wrote an essay on Navajo silversmithing. Check that book out. A lot of books and our collection. Our library has a lot of these older anthropological texts. So same thing happened with this Navajo weaving project. Um, I just kind of on a whim picked it up and it was published in 1903. But I don't really think I knew that and the language that was going to be in it. Um, And so I actually, on the way to estuaries, like read it on the plane um, to New York City. And I was like, oh, boy, this is interesting.
0: Yeah, that would have been a really that I can imagine an intensely strange way to enter into a residency about like art writing.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I wasn't too surprised because when I was doing that Silversmith project, I read the Navajo and Pueblo Silversmiths, which was published in 1944 from John Adair. And it's kind of the same with this book where, like, there's a lot of valuable information, but the language and tone it's reading it in, I was just getting so angry on the plane. Like, I was reading it, and I was just getting even more just, like, amped up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what was there, like, a specific part? Or what was the first part where you were like, oh, boy, here I am?
2: Um, I feel free to edit this out, but I thought I would read the introduction. Yeah, definitely. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. So he says with the passing of North American Indians from their native condition there's an increasing interest in all that relates to them to their origin to their modes of life before they were disturbed by the influence of advancing civilization and the sequence of events it will not be long until they will live only in history And therefore, realizing that this fate awaits them in the near future, we are collecting and recording all information we can obtain regarding their legends, traditions, beliefs, habits, manners, customs, and handiwork, and are eager to witness their tribal ceremonies and religious rites before the encroachment of the white man bring about their discontinuance. Every fact pertaining to their lives that we gather and record, and every article of their production that we obtain and preserve, will be of value to coming generations and add to the stock of material available to future historians of this remarkable race of men.
0: Oh my God. There's so much. (laughs) There's just so much. Like the, every, it checks every box of exactly how bad a text like that can be.
2: Right. (laughs) I know. And that's the first paragraph. (laughs) I'm like, oh no. (laughs) <laughs> and but you know i think it's like valuable i was thinking about this like after a few days later I, was, like, I think it's a valuable text because it shows like the level of racism towards not only navajo people but all like indigenous native north american people and i think like in 2023 we forget or we i mean we weren't there so it's hard to really grasp that level of discrimination Um, an oppression and when you read something like this when someone so boldly says like yeah the Navajos are all going to go extinct then you're like oh crap like me being here and me having I mean not just me but like having Native people in museums and having Native people being invited to be collaborators and like working in art history is like not a little deal it actually is kind of like a big deal. I wonder how
0: that sits with your experience of studying and working in museums and as an art historian or in art history and going to the museum of your institution. And, you know, we can talk about that as as much or as little as you want to in terms of RISD, but doing research for projects like this and this being the kind of resource that you are met with.
2: So we have a lot of Navajo textile books, but this one just kind of stood out to me. And it's also the most historical record to date. So I think in like academia, like it's interesting to see those time frames. and this one being 1903, like Navajo people were freed from Bosque Redondo in 1868. So if you think about it, that's like what, 35-ish years um, since, you know, then, and that's such a historical date. So for me, you know, that's really valuable. Um, and I, like, had known about Uriah Hollister before because I was doing a, um exhibition review for First American Art Magazine of Shaped by the Loom, which is an exhibition curated by Hadley Jensen at Bard. Um, and it was curatorially consulted with Barbara Teller-Arnelles and Linda Teller. Those are my old weaving instructors. And so I did the exhibition review, and I found this really gorgeous pink textile. As you can see, I love pink. It's this Navajo pink textile and I freaked out and I sent it to my brother and it was donated by Uriah S. Holster. Like he donated a lot of Navajo textiles to the American Museum of Natural History, which with the Shape by the Loom project are just now like being seen to the public and being digitized. Um, and a part of that exhibition was getting the photos online and it was cool because I'm in Rhode Island and my brother is a Navajo weaver and he's in Arizona we're FaceTiming and like sharing the link and like so I don't know like yeah he was pretty racist but like his collection was beautiful and now I'm so happy that I get to enjoy it and like that textile brings me so much joy like I love it. And the information in the book is valuable. Like the technical weaving information is valuable. Granted, I don't know how much of it is wrong um, because he wasn't a weaver and he has such a authoritative voice in the book that you would think like, Oh, he knows what he's talking about. But then you read the way he writes about Navajo people. And I'm like, that's wrong. That's not true. He's like the Navajo favorite fruit is peach. And I'm like, you know, we're not just like one monolithic people. Like, it's just so fascinating to heavily think about. So yeah, I don't know. it's this balance between like understanding that he has valuable collections and valuable knowledge, but at the same time you have to just filter out and weed out these um, it's I mean, I'll just say it's it's racist writing. But yeah, part of my work at RISD is like bringing Navajo people to our Navajo textile collection that very similar to American Museum of Natural History was donated by white folks who went out West and collected Navajo textiles and came back to the East Coast and donated it. And, you know, I will freely admit I'm a Navajo scholar, but I don't know the intricate details of Navajo weaving and I can weave, but I'm not a cultural expert so for me you know I'm learning as well on this journey and it's been really great to have Navajo people visit our collections and just give their first-hand knowledge about these pieces um, that for so long was interpreted through white anthropologists or white art history lens I guess I see myself as like a facilitator of knowledge but I think Mr. Hollister really saw himself as the authoritarian of this knowledge um, and he wasn't even like one of us, which is so interesting to think about.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like these people who you're working with and facilitating knowledge around are sort of resources for your research and, and thinking around this exhibition and writing. Are there other, like what would be a sort of ideal reference text or writing about mm. Navajo textile? Like are there, are there sort of texts that you can share or that you've really enjoyed?
2: Well, I love the Shape by the Loom exhibition, and there's a lot of writing about, um, you know, Navajo weaving in that exhibition, so it's in person and it's also online, and I love that it's online because it's like, even if you can't make it to New York City, anyone across the country can see it. And there's this essay written by Ira Jackness, who's an American anthropologist, um, and he talks about this history of collecting. And so, you know, um, Mr. Holster wasn't the only one or the only family. There's so many families who have, and they're mostly non Native, collected um, Native American cultural history. And, you know, I would even call these textiles fine art. And so it's a phenomenon that I think people are just now reckoning with. Like, this was written in 1903, and now it's 2023. And I'm trying to like pick up this research and lots of other people have done it before me. But I think being a little bit younger, I also just like get so much more agitated by the racism because like it's not something that I guess like had experience with before, if that makes sense. I know older Native and Indigenous scholars like have had to just go through so much.
0: So it's sort of a... It's like a racism that you are now experiencing textually.
2: Yeah, yeah. Navajo people oftentimes, because we're nomadic, a lot of times people thought we were primitive or barbaric or like savages. And Hollister even uses that language because we didn't have permanent living structures like Pueblos or other tribes. And it's so funny to me because like now on TikTok, I see that, like, it's very trendy to do, like, the van life, which is this, like, nomadic lifestyle. And it's interesting because, like, as Navajo people, we were ashamed for that and seen as being lesser than or not in an advanced civilization. And now all these years later, it's becoming trendy. So it's just a really shift in perspective. Um, and I think, like, that's just one example, but it also applies to Hollister really diminishing all of our cultural knowledge, Um and I don't even think he realized how intelligent we were, but you know, that's not, uh, something that you can force on someone, but it's fun now for me. I get like, I get so interested in this and I have so much fun researching it because it tells a story. Um, and I think there's like so many awesome, cool contemporary Navajo weavers right now. Like, it's so exciting to see what all the artists are making and so like here at RISD for that exhibition I'm acquiring a new acquisition from one of my favorite female Dene weavers who the purchase isn't done yet so I can't say but like that's coming into our collection and I think that's super powerful because like Hollister thought that we were gonna one not be alive anymore but two that weaving was gonna just like, go extinct um, this Navajo weaver that I'm acquiring this shawl from is so badass and cool, and like everything that I love and like stand for. Like, she has her own sh- Navajo churro sheep flock. She's a really independent woman. She's a veteran. She served in the army. Like, she's fucking cool. Sorry, curse. she's really cool. <laughs> um, and we have her name recorded down, and she's going to be credited because, like, with all of these historic textiles, we don't know who made them. Um, And so I'm kind of like, haha, we're proving you wrong. And so for my past exhibition, um, for all of our historical indigenous North American items, I put artists once known, um, which was really shifting the fact that like even Hollister writes about these textile makers as like crafts people. I'm like, no, it's not a craft, it's a fine art. And like, if you really know what you're talking about when it comes to Navajo weaving, you'll understand how technically skilled these works are. Um, and so for this exhibition, you know, I'm trying to think about what I want the language to be for these historic pieces, because I love the phrase artist once known because it's highlighting these Navajo, mostly female weavers as artists. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great text by Nancy Mitlow. There is no word for art in our language, which I also encourage people to read. I love that text. Um, but also, once known and it's trying to say that like the community knew who these weavers were but it's the museum RISD and our donors who didn't take the care to mark that down Um, and that's not the case for every department here at RISD like we know the Picassos we know the Monet's it's a greater metaphor for racism that these Navajo women are not credited and, and so for my exhibition, I'm thinking about using artists once known or all, all these phrases. I was even thinking about translating and Denebizod on the label. But the only thing is I'm thinking about my audience here in Providence, Rhode Island, and I'm trying to balance audience perspectives and understandings. Um, but I think it's just valuable for people to know that Denebizod, or Navajo language, is not extinct um and like again Hollister thought we were all going to be dead it was like no we're not dead and we're still like speaking our language I think in the future a lot of us are going to be reconciling this I think the time is now in our culture and in the field where we're all going to be having these experiences I think it's just great to talk about it because like it's not just a Navajo Hollister thing I mean this replica of power dynamics and racist writing is happening like It happened to so many people and so what i'm really excited about is more native and indigenous folks getting in the field and talking about it and providing just a greater educational and visual history of what happened because i think that's how we like move forward and i think a lot of this has been forgotten um and so that's why as like a curator i'm i get nerd out and i geek out so i just want to say that i'm excited for what everyone else has to share and i'm excited to listen to that because um I know it's going to be really good. This is Shundeen
0: Brown reading Laura Tohey's There is No Word for Feminism in My Language from Native American Literature on the Edge of a New Century published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2000.
2: As long as I can remember the Diné, or Navajo, as we are also referred to, women in my life have always shown courage, determination, strength, persistence, and endurance in their own special way. My female relatives lived their lives within the Diné, matrilineal culture that valued, honored, and respected them. These women passed on to their daughters not only their strength— but the expectation to assume responsibility for the family and therefore were expected to act as leaders for the family and the tribe. Despite 500 years of Western patriarchal intrusion, this practice continues. My mother dropped out of high school, ran away to the Grand Canyon in Arizona and ended up becoming pregnant for my father, who had recently returned from World War II. They married and more children followed. After several children and a failing marriage, my mother gathered all his kids up, and we went to live near her mother, who was teaching on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. In the early 1950s, my mother took her young family of four boys and one daughter to live in a hogan, a Diné traditional home. Our home had no plumbing or electricity. With less than a high school education, my mother took a job as a cook with the Bureau of Indian Affairs School where she cooked over institutional stoves, washed heavy steel pots, and served food to Diné boarding school students. My mother, with her trays and cumbersome pans, and I, with my word processor, are just one generation apart. I have children of my own now. I hold a PhD, write, and teach in a large Southwestern research university. I live a relatively comfortable life, unlike that of my mother and her generation of Indian women, who were for the most part thrust into a world that required them to know how to fill out job applications and pass a driver's license test. The world had changed for these women, who were still bound to the traditional ways of living and providing for the family. I imagine my mother now, and the daily struggles Indian women from her era had to endure, and still endure. I ask myself, how did this previous generation of Diné women do it? How did they survive the hand-to-mouth existence that became more common after boarding schools and the introduction of a monetary system? Tremendous changes took place in the lives of these women, particularly during and after World War II. However, this is not a story about those poor Indian women who were assimilated, colonized, Christianized, or victimized. This is a story about how these women cling to the roots of their female lineage despite the many institutional forces imposed on Indian communities and how they continue to survive despite 500 years of colonialism. The Diné women continue to possess the qualities of leadership and strength and continue to endure and ultimately to pass on those qualities to their daughters, even though there is no word for feminism in the Diné language. Native women have always worked to help support the family, even before the reservation system was established. Later, when the white man established trading posts on the reservation, the women wove and sold blankets in exchange for food and supplies. While the male roles diminished as protectors and providers for the family, the women's roles persisted, and in many instances, the women adapted more easily. Changing Woman, sometimes known as White Shell Woman, is the principal mythological deity in the Diné culture. She gave to the Diné the first clans and the guidelines of how the Diné should live their lives. She birthed the twin heroes who destroyed the monsters that were ravaging the people. She underwent the first Da ceremony, the puberty ceremony for young women. Through her, the matriarchal system of the Diné was established. The Danette culture takes its identity from the female, not the male, through clan membership. Changing woman created from her body the first clans. I am from the Sleepy Rock People clan, born for the Bitter Water clan. means that I am born from my mother and born for my father. This distinction is important because it means that we are born from our mother's body and she birthed us for our father. The maternal clan is always introduced first, then the paternal clan, followed by the grandparents' clans. This complex clan system prevents incest and establishes kinship ties that define appropriate behavior between relatives and non-relatives. When I reached puberty, my mother advised me that I could no longer play with my brothers as I had as a girl child. I was a young woman and expected to behave as such. My brothers were advised that I was to be treated with appropriate behavior. In the traditional Dinette culture long ago, since there were no professions in the Western sense, one did not identify the self as teacher, writer, or cook. Instead, roles were determined by age, sex, and kinship. A girl plays the role of daughter to her mother and is introduced in that way. She carries out her responsibilities as daughter until she passes into a different phase of her life. As she matures, she is groomed by the female members of her family in preparation for a greater role as a leader for her family and community. She is groomed for motherhood, which carries a different connotation in Diné culture than in Western culture. The role and identity of the mother signifies creator and protector of life. Within the Diné culture, mother means more than just the one who births the children and prepares and cooks the meals. She is more than a mere caregiver. She might also be a rancher, sheepherder, weaver, or teacher. A woman earns the right to claim her place as a mother after the birth of her first child. The title mother carries with it the numerous roles needed to see to the needs of her family and clan without the necessity of revealing her other roles. It is generally understood within this context that she holds many responsibilities in being a mother. The work she does makes her role honorable. From an early age, a girl is groomed to become a leader by being given responsibilities within the home so that she will be able to care for herself and her family. As she matures, her responsibilities increase in proportion to her age and abilities. However, a woman need not give birth to be called aunt. She might be an aunt and still be thought of as a mother. The English term aunt is translated as little mother in Diné. A non-relative may also address a woman as an aunt if she is near her, his, mother's age, thereby establishing kinship and appropriate behavior. Clan relationship serves to establish familial responsibility between strangers to prevent taking sexual advantage of the female. The term Sani is usually used to refer to women. However, the root of the word Sani refers to elderly women and men, indicating old age, wisdom, and experience from having lived a long life. The women are responsible for most of the teaching and transmittal of culture. The term, therefore, implies teaching, which refers back to Sani, elder, and wise one. Female and male elders are revered and honored for their experience and knowledge of culture and the traditional Diné world. Old age was not a stigma, but an honorable stage of life. When Changing Woman reached puberty, she underwent a four-day coming-of-age ceremony that is still practiced among traditional families. It is a holistic celebration that includes the physical, emotional, spiritual, and intellectual components of female life. For the duration of this special ceremony, the young woman is immersed in the care and advice of the women and the community. The initiate participates in an event that celebrates her transformation from girl to woman. When I was 12, I participated in the Kanalda, walking into beauty ceremony. The ritualistic run into the East began in the August dawn, just at sunrise. My paternal grandmother woke me every morning for three days and said, Ha Wake up, granddaughter. The sun is rising. It's time for you to run. My soft sheepskin bed felt warm and cozy yet, and I didn't want to leave it so soon. Rising, I smoothed my hair and clothes and pulled on my moccasins. The desert dawn felt cool the arid land would eventually turn warm and the heat would shimmer from the earth like waves of water. As I ran, my grandmother's words came to me that I should shout to clear the stale air in my lungs, to alert other plants, animal life, and most important, to let the holy people know of my transformations or that they too could be part of the ceremony. Back at my grandmother's house, my relatives had come to help celebrate by doing the work necessary for the completion of the ceremony and by bringing gifts of food, jewelry, blankets, cloth, and money. During this time, a female relative is chosen for a role model, a woman who possesses the desired qualities in a Diné woman, generosity, wisdom, strength of character, and one who is respected by her community. My aunt was chosen as the ideal woman. She massaged my body and through this symbolic act was molding and forming me so that I would grow by the example set by her and by Changing Woman. I was expected to show generosity, cheerfulness, and respect to my guest and the manner of Changing Woman. My diet consisted of only natural foods and liquids to keep my body sacred and healthy. Nothing foreign, no processed foods. This ceremony also promotes self-control and discipline. On the final night of the ceremony, an all night blessing took place. I was sung into a woman by the medicine man and the guests that served to bless and honor my new life. At dawn, my mother washed my hair with yucca soap and made me ready for the final run, at which time my brothers, grandfather, and cousin joined me. Because I held the place of honor, they could not pass me. Afterwards, the sweet corn cake that baked all night was distributed to the guest, along with gifts of food, jewelry, and dry goods. Throughout this ceremony, my body was acknowledged, celebrated, and made ready for the role of a mature woman. Reaching puberty was not a shameful, dirty, and dreadful experience. Celebrating puberty with the canal da ceremony ushers the young woman into a society that values her. As I recall it now, how different this experience was from the seventh grade teacher who taped black construction paper to the windows and gave the boys a longer lunch break so that he could show us the film on female puberty. In this educational film, the young white girl went through her day alone with only her mother to give her instructions the narrator advised to run the right water temperature to take a shower in and showed pictures of internal organs that resembled a Rorschach inkblot test. It was not an event that gathered family for a community celebration. When our young teacher from Wyoming finally turned on the lights, his face was flush red with embarrassment. He removed the black construction paper, replaced the film in the canister, and allowed the boys to return to the classroom. One asked what movie we had seen. No one answered him. We had felt the need to be silent. The underlying message was that puberty was a dirty and shameful business that you went through alone. Now that I am an adult, I am beginning to understand the fuller significance of the kanalda, and how it continues to affect my life. Like my mother and other Indian women who grew up in a matrilineal culture, when we cross into the Western world, we see how that world values women differently. The Diné women learned this after the return from the military-enforced Long Walk when they were forced to attend government boarding schools. Young girls were forced to leave home and learn not only an alien culture, but also a vocational skill that would supposedly enable them to make a living in the white man's world. Though they may have found jobs in a white world as blue-collar workers, The women have always worked and didn't expect to be pampered or taken care of by their fathers or husbands. In the traditional world of my female ancestors, my great-great-grandmother made her living in a creative way. My mother was raised by her until she was old enough to attend school and would return to her for the summer. My mother tells me stories of her. Great-grandmother needed to increase her herd of sheep. She provided food and wool for the blankets that the woman wove and took to the trading post to sell and trade for other goods. Great grandmother was a weaver and had accumulated a number of flour sacks that she had bought or traded for at the trading post. She set about cutting and sewing by hand a number of skirts that Navajo women wore. When she was finished, she gathered up other items of trade to take with her. If her husband was there, He stayed behind to attend to his own work. Great-grandmother did not expect to be taken care of and treated like a helpless individual. Having made sure that things would be taken care of at home, she left the older ones in charge and told them she would be back when she completed her business.
0: Thank you for coming back
2: to the podcast, Shandine. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I was like listening to Megan's podcast and I was thinking about my own and I was like oh I wish I said that or I wish I said this Um, and then you emailed me so I'm happy to be back.
0: We wanted to come back and talk about another text starting with the Uriah Hollister text was good but I really wanted to come back and talk to you about a text that really got it right. But then in listening to our interview, I was like, oh, and I also really want to pick up on all of these threads about the exhibition you're organizing and see where things have gone and stand. So how's the exhibition going?
2: Yeah, the exhibition is going well. Last time we talked, I don't even, it's been a busy summer, so I don't even remember where I was in the planning stage. And so now I'm excited to share more information. You have a title now. I have a title um it's the net textiles which means in the Navajo they are beautifully dressed and it was important for me to have that Navajo language in there in the title and at Momis and at Forge we talked a lot about using our own language so what I ended up doing is all of the historic pieces if they were made in a time where I think the maker was speaking Navajo, I put Navajo language in the label. So it's not completely translated, but like the title of the work will be in Navajo because I was trying to think about the artists who were making works, what language they were speaking during the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a lot of our, you know, the textiles that were made in the late 1800s, people were speaking Navajo. So following the thread of like honoring the makers, I wanted to incorporate that.
0: hmm and you suggested a text that we talk about today. Is this a text that was already within sort of your bibliography or is it one that you came across in researching this exhibition?
2: Yeah, so I originally titled the exhibition uh, Danette Textiles, Fashion and Feminism. And I loved like the using a word with app and app. I was like, ah, oh, it sounds great, you know. And then I looked up Navajo feminism because I'm like, I'm super interested in indigenous feminisms. So let me see if I can hyper focus on this Navajo perspective. And what I found was that Laura Tohe piece and also another uh, article about Navajo women rejecting, you know, this Western idea of feminism. And so I was like, okay, let me give this a really close read and I feel like, For me, one of the best parts of writing is being a reader and reading Laura's text. I was like, wow, this is making a lot of sense and I can't use the word feminism. So the exhibition is really focused on our Navajo or Diné textiles here at the University Museum. So being a museum that's centered at a school for art and design, people really appreciated our Diné textiles as works of art, Um, you know, in the exhibition, we're gonna talk a lot about these symmetrical geometric patterns, um, amazing uses of color, um, light and dark spaces. And so, you know, they've always been appreciated from a lens of art and design, but when I had the opportunity to curate in our costume and textile gallery, I was like, well, why don't we flip this around and think about these textiles, you know, as garments and as fashion. And then I was like, well, I want to make sure that there's Navajo language involved in this because my pedagogical approach is from being a Diné's On or a Navajo woman. It's not, you know, from being a non-Native curator or a collector. Um, And some of the textiles in the exhibition were in Andy Warhol's Raid the Icebox exhibition, which was like one of the first artist-curated exhibitions, and I can't find photos, so I have no idea how he displayed this, but I'm pretty sure these were never on mannequins before, and mm. so I was like, I know I want, you know, dinette textiles in there, what else should I do? And had <laughs> it, which means they are beautifully dressed, um, I was like, that's what this is all about, like, Navajo women being amazing fashion designers, and making couture garments through Navajo weaving, and so the title will not be you know translated except for a few places because i feel very strongly about you know when these were made during that time there was a strong use of navajo language and that's what i feel uh, strongly about incorporating in the in the exhibition mhm mhm
0: i was really struck by last time we spoke you saying that you saw your position as a facilitator of knowledge But that Mm -hmm. in the text we were talking about, the Hollister text, um, that Mm -hmm. he was presenting, you know, a position of authority, even though he was a a white man (laughs) speaking about a culture. And then I'm interested to hear you talk about this Tohei piece and like how you see her position within that matrix or even just on her own or in relation to your own thought we can put Hollister aside completely
2: <laughs> yeah so I think you know I will always be as a curator a student and so in this facilitation role as a curator it's like me facilitating artist's work to go on view so what was really great about the exhibition is yes we're doing this historic recontextualization so the wearing blankets and garments and fashion pieces are now all on mannequins um, which is fantastic but we're also including contemporary works and so I was thinking about this other day it's been a whole year that I have been making acquisitions at the museum for this exhibition um, the acquisition process is lengthy, but I really am passionate about bringing more Native women, specifically Native women, into our collection. Um, and so, you know, it's a facilitator of this recontextualization, but it's also a facilitator of introducing our audiences to some really cool Indigenous um female artists and I think the audiences are going to respond really well they might not have seen these people work before but they will in the future and I think that it tells this really beautiful story of past and present and prompts people to think about the future and then yeah for the Tohei piece I mean when we're talking about Hollister like he spent some time with Navajos but I don't know if he really understood us because Navajo women are so headstrong and empowered people. And so that Tohei piece is so amazing because she is just saying how it is. And Hollister, maybe he didn't spend enough time or listen enough to Navajo women because I don't think he would have wrote what he wrote if he, you know, really understood who we are. Um, and it takes, you know, a strong, the nads on or a strong person like that to come into this role, and say like you know this is what I think this is what I believe and even though the writing isn't specifically about you know art history I think it points to a history of Navajo art which is that Navajo women were doing this to survive
1: yeah
2: um and a lot of my curatorial practice revolves around Um, this blend of contemporary and historic. And a lot of times for this historic work, it's because people wanted to survive and art was a way of survivance. And so, you know, it's um, two very different perspectives, but um, I'm also really excited because one of um, Laura Tohe's poems will be printed in vinyl on the wall in the exhibition space. Um, It's a poem she wrote called Female Rain, and so I'm excited for visitors, you know, to be able to absorb her writing because it was so informative in my thinking when I was developing the exhibition. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I wanted to hear more from you about the the way that Tohei describes, um, like, making and selling textiles, as you say, for survival, um, and then mm-hmm. the positioning now of textiles— um, as like couture garments and as um works of art and that of course objects can hold many kinds of functions and values Mm -hmm. but I think it's really interesting that you that you're making this exhibition but you're pointing so directly to this other or integrated function of these art objects Mm
2: -hmm. yeah so in the label you know in the exhibition chat um when visitors, you know, first start reading about the exhibition, they'll see that you know there's no word in Diné Bazad or Navajo language for art. Um, and I I love when I talk to RISD students and when I give Native art history lectures here at RISD, I love to bring that point up because in the Western world they have a separate art from utilitarian use, but for a lot of Native people and for Diné those were married and they were never separated like art was everywhere there was no need for the word and um, in the exhibition I talk a lot about Jean which is a very complicated ideology um, but for the purposes of writing we got it down to beauty balance and harmony and so We don't have a word for art, but we have this other ideology called hajon, and it's not just for our visual art. It's for who we are as people, who we are as a community. And so those Navajo weavers, you know, they survived through making really beautiful things. Um, In our creation story, it says that Spider Woman, she's this holy being. She taught Navajos how to weave so we would stay warm. So we would weave those textiles and take care of ourselves. And so, when I also talk about hojo I think about this matriarchal uh, line of women teaching other women and how to survive and how to be independent. And that really stems back from Spider Woman teaching us, um, and then we pass it off to our children. And I come from a family of Navajo weavers, and I kind of can weave. I don't think I have the calling, but for me, I take that responsibility as in being a facilitator for bringing this up to our audiences, but also incorporating this to Navajo folks. And one of my favorite parts of this whole you know, journey has been connecting with other Diné weavers and um, learning from them. And I'm really excited to bring their work into the collection. There's a few really standout people like Darby Raymond Overstreet, um, tannabanani uh halfway through the exhibition, we'll have some switch outs where people can see more um works that we'll have in our permanent collection, so it's really exciting.
0: I want to transition into
2: asking you
0: maybe a little bit more specifically about your about your writing practice. It's interesting to think about writing as a curator within an institution and writing. Outside of the institution that employs you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, yeah, I wonder for you um, are there different kinds of writing or positions that you take up based on what is sort of containing
2: you? Absolutely. So when I'm writing for RISD or we're creating labels for RISD, um, it's much more simplified than I normally intend in my drafts. And I have a really great relationship with our editor here at the RISD Museum. Her name is Amy Pickworth, and I think of us more as collaborators than uh, these separate entities. And so, you know, what she's really helped me learn as a writer is like, you know, I'm so deep in the weeds. I am so interested and down the rabbit hole with my interest and identity. And, you know, I spent... My formative years growing up as a Diné woman, so, you know, things to me that are easy for our general public might not be. And so we work a lot together on making sure that people's interest is maintained, because if it's this really complicated stuff, people get overwhelmed and walk away. And I think we've all experienced this at a museum where we started reading the label and you were like, I'm just going to go look at the piece. Because um, I mean, I, I guess it's different for writing essays versus writing label texts. But I really want the work to be able to speak on its own, not me doing 150 words trying to, you know, interpret something. Because I think the work can speak on its own. But for essays, you know, a lot of times um, Amy has to work with me to like simplify our history, which is often complicated um as you know I write a lot about Navajo art here and so you know I have to write about you know what was the Navajo long walk what was the forced imprisonment at Bosque Redondo because a lot of people don't know and so when we're simplifying this you know it's not frustrating but I would say it's a little sad that our education system here in America just does not educate people about this. And so we're doing that in the museums, we're doing that in the publications. Um, but when you're writing for audiences who are native and, you know, maybe they're not Navajo specifically, but they have an idea of what it was like for uh, their people to be removed and, you know, these very complex histories, then I think we can kind of get into the weeds a little bit more and and have these deeper conversations um, and so I, I like to read, I mean, I like to write a lot for Navajo people. I like to write a lot for like my mom and sometimes, you know, she doesn't read my stuff, but I was like, if my mom ra- ra- read this, like, what would she think? Um, there's like a community of people who would hold me accountable. Like if they didn't like my writing, they'd definitely let me know. Or mm-hmm. if, you know, I got something wrong. Um, but that's exciting. That's a challenge. and um not everyone has the calling for writing, so that's why I like to do it for a Navajo audience and about Navajo stuff, because there's a lot of scholarship to get done, and just like I don't have the calling for weaving, some people don't have the calling for writing, and so I'm trying to use my uh, calling for good, and it's fun. It's a lot of fun. So do you
0: also write in Diné
2: so I, you know, I'm still on my Navajo language journey. It's very complicated. So I like on this exhibition also had a lot of help from my mom, from my brother and from my friend, um, Ty Matiba. He helped me a lot. And so he's credited in my exhibition. Thank yous. I said, yeah. So that's thank you. Because, you know, it takes a village and my, Shumasana and my grandmother really, wanted me to speak and practice and use Navajo. And so it's something that I take really seriously, but I have so much more work to do. Um, but what I do like to do is do poetry in Navajo. So when Laura Tohe's poem will be in the gallery, it's gonna be in English and it's also gonna be in Navajo. And I really admire her for doing poetry in Navajo. Um, Navajo is a really descriptive language. And so, you know, I think Emotions can be sensed a little bit more differently than in English. It's almost like a puzzle in my head, I think, working with Navajo language, but it's not an impossible one. And it's tough because I feel a lot of pressure because my community and my grandma specifically really wanted me to practice the episode. but and I talk about this with my colleagues who are also working in their own native languages. like i if I could have chose differently, I would have, but because of settler colonialism and cultural assimilation, I didn't have the option. And a lot of stuff has been taken away for Native people with Native languages. And I think it's really exciting right now because we're trying to get that momentum back and, you know, I've heard from elders about the, the shame they had speaking Navajo or how at boarding school, you know, they were beaten or soap was put in their mouth because they spoke Navajo. And so, um, you know, I'm trying my best to honor those experiences and use it and be proud about it. And, um, yeah, it's it's really emotional, but that's, I think, what is the truth. hmm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: I'm thinking about the interview with Megan because it's so it's so close in my mind, but um, she was describing difficulties of holding that that much responsibility for her community and her history. But then also saying, like, it's not a burden, it's a joy. But then also, yeah, hearing you describe this and the pressure of it, that feels that feels like a lot.
2: It It is a lot. And I think I can be my worst critic um, and really hard on myself you know I had this goal like I am going to be fluent in Navajo at this point in my life didn't happen I'm going to be fluent at this point in my life it didn't happen and it's interesting that you bring up Megan because like what was really transformative for me was when I spent time in Aotearoa or in New Zealand and I spoke with these Maori language speakers and different folks who were like you need to be way nicer to yourself Because I would get so upset. And I was like, you know, I just like, if I I was forgetting things in college specifically. I was forgetting Navajo language because I wasn't using it. Um, And I was getting really like mad at myself. Like, you know, this is important to me. Like I, but at the same time, I mean, I was working. I was trying to finish my senior thesis. Like anyway, so the point of the story is that it was very special for me because my grandma had passed on at this point to have some older Maori woman tell me to like chill and to be nice to myself. And that if I was nicer to myself, I would learn the language quicker because I wasn't beating myself up and I was having fun. Um, And my Navajo name is Shundin. And I actually, before I went to Aotearoa, I was Haley. That's my first name. Shundin is my middle name and my Navajo name. Mm. After going to Aotearoa, everyone used their Maori names. And I was like, well, you know, I am Shundin and that means Sunray. I was like, that's who I am. As a Navajo woman, I am Shundin. And it's not something that uh, I need to feel ostracized for. And if people don't know how to pronounce it, I'm super happy to help them. And I think being in Aotearoa where people were using Maori and they were like helpful if you couldn't pronounce it was super transformative for me and yeah so that's that's my integration of Dinebizad in my practice but talk to me in 20 years and hey maybe I'll have a totally different perspective but that's where I'm at now
0: (laughs) (laughs) thank you one of the questions I always like to ask is um and I know your head is like really in the exhibition right now but I'm curious to know what's something that you've written recently that you were really happy with, maybe outside of RISD or outside of the exhibition
2: space. Um, hmm. I think there's two things I'm thinking of, so feel free to include whichever. No, tell me both, please. Okay, so the first was at Forge, at the Forge Momus Residency we did a like nature walk and then we all got to write and I wrote this poem. And so we were just having that pretty serious conversation about indigenous languages and shame and pressure. And I'm like, that would honestly be a great idea for a poem because there's things sometimes that emotions that feel so heavy that, you know, writing is one way to release that. yeah, And so I wrote this poem, um, at the residency and it was really fun it was a fun process and I was nervous to read it to the group and everyone liked it and I was like that makes me feel so great um and it was about you know being outside at Forge it was beautiful and it reminded me of being a kid running around and my grandmother was like you're a wild child I was like grandma you're wild too uh and we you know laughed about it but what's funny about this poem is I was like, oh man, I should like do something with this. Like I should publish it. And I can't find the journal um, that I wrote it in. Oh, and no. So I yeah, know, but I almost think it's like metaphorical, right? Is that like, that was like a really fleeting experience. It was just for one week, but I think it's propelled me to keep doing this kind of stuff. Like I can write more poems and that happiness and joy again of writing like it was a really fun writing experience there was no (laughs) there was no pressure sometimes that you feel in your office uh in the basement of the museum being like I have to get this deadline (laughs) looking at concrete walls like it was fun and so the joy from that I'm like I really want to keep that in my practice and also just writing to write and I was like I don't have a deadline I don't have a project this is for but like, I could, you know, share this with people or I could not. Um, so, you know, if the journal pops up, that would be amazing. Um, but if it doesn't, I think maybe creator is teaching me a lesson or I'm just really disorganized. So it could even it could really go either um, And then the second one is um, I wrote an exhibition review about, shaped by the loom for First Americans Art Magazine. And like, you know, writing exhibition reviews, sometimes they can be uh, quick knockouts, but for this exhibition, it was about Danette Weaving. So I was like, this is what I'm interested in in as a curator. And so that was so much fun because I kind of went like above and beyond and interviewed people in the exhibition and interviewed the curator. And like, I had a really good time just absorbing the show and I was not involved in the curatorial process or anything but I was like this exhibition was almost like made for me and my interests and I did so much research and so Uriah Hollister his collection is in that exhibition and in the review I write like we don't know the Navajo women who made these textiles but we know that they're collected from this man. And so like, that is just a huge metaphor for this treatment that American culture has had towards Navajo women who are these extremely skilled and knowledgeable and talented artists versus Hollister, who, you know, I'm not trying to knock him down, but he he didn't understand. He had really no scholarship or... Grounding in this work, but his name's on the wall, and um, I I talk in the exhibition review. You know, this is a shameful history we are contending with, and I think we're contending with it right now in the museum. And so, you know, I kind of talked about my mom doesn't really read my writing. Um, me and my mom are really close, and we like to talk about Navajo skirts and what we ate for lunch. Like our relationship is not on scholarship, and I like it that way, but the magazine mailed to my mom's house for editions in the magazine. And she was like, why do you have so many magazines? And I was like, well, you should read my article in there. And so, like, over the phone, she's reading it out loud. And at the end, oh, I don't want to cry. At the end, she was like, you did a really good job. And she was like, I'm really proud of you. And um, I, you know, it meant a lot to me because um, our whole family are weavers. And so she has a really high respect for this art and this practice and like I said she doesn't read a lot of my stuff and I kind of like it that way but uh, when she said that it meant a lot to me and you know it also made me think about like the words that I use in my writing like some of the words she was like what does this even mean and I was like that's maybe a good reminder for me like I don't need to use the word epistemology. Like, let's let's make this more accessible, or pedagogy. Like, let's just say teaching, because at the end of the day, I think my favorite audience to write for is my own people. So, I, I mean, I think the Tohei text does a really good job of melding the past and the present mm. and honoring the past. But something that I'm really excited about is Indigenous futurisms. I'm super excited about what's going to happen in the future with Diné women, and so you know that spirit of the text in Tohe's piece is that Navajo women were strong, we are strong now, and we're going to be strong and be leaders and be um, culture bearers and and just badass, tough people. And so the only thing I guess I can add is that I'm excited for. My generation, but also for like my best friend, uh, her niece is like six, and she's a Navajo girl. And I make buttons. I'm really interested in making buttons. And so, the Barbie movie came out, and I made her a little Navajo Barbie button that says it's a Barbie inishe, so that says hi, my name is Barbie. But I want her to have that because it's all about you know raising this next group of Navajo women to be tough and to continue to be strong, because I feel like there's a lot of stuff happening in this world and we need strong Navajo women.
0: Momus the podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. Thanks to Shandine Brown for her contribution to this season and to Gulf Coast and the Tony Beauchamp Prize for their support which is especially meaningful as past Momus writers have been awarded this prize.
1: Yes, we're so grateful for that support as we've been looking to that prize and um, in conversation with it, shall we say, through our publishing for some time. You can find us at patreon.com backslash Art if you'd like to support us on a monthly basis or contact me directly about making a one-time donation or making it annual. Any amount genuinely helps and goes directly to our writers, our podcast guests, and our editors. Um, you can reach me at momus.ca.
0: This has been episode 46 of Momus the Podcast.